Good morning. Some of you look like you are at church in Indiana. You are bundled up this morning. What a great morning to be in church. Thanks be to God. Pastor Darwin mentioned our Thanksgiving offering for global missions that we received during this time of the year. Two weeks from today, one of the expressions of global missions here at Paznaz is that from time to time we have missionaries come to campus, talk to us about what God is doing in the area of the world where they are serving. And two weeks from today, we will hear through interview from Christine and Greg Miller. They are a part of this congregation. We've served as their sponsoring church. They're working in Malawi. Christine is a public health medical doctor and Greg is teaching young Nazarene men and women in preparation to pastor churches. And so I hope you'll be here to just hear them in their interview on Sunday morning. That's also the first Sunday of Advent and we are looking forward to celebrating the season of waiting as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus. The Millers will also be speaking during the Sunday school hour in the SALT class, so if you wanna hear them, you're welcome to attend that class on that day to hear more about their work that is taking place in, in Malawi. But Global Missions matters to us. Sharing the good news of the gospel around the world matters to us. Our mission statement talks about serving in the local and global communities, and we do both. As we've been looking these past three weeks in the book of Acts, we've been understanding a little more what it means for the gospel to be spread from Jerusalem and beyond. And so this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. I don't know that I've ever preached a sermon from Acts chapter 15. In fact, I don't know that I've ever heard a message from Acts chapter 15. Because it describes the work of the early church leaders as the church emerges from Jerusalem, as it has spread into Samaria, as it has now gone into other places beyond that. And there are some challenges in the early church. There's some challenges related to what will be required of the Gentiles as they choose to follow Jesus. And so this morning, as Kamini read that chapter, we got a sense of the sweep of the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church as they gathered to discuss really important issues. And in that first major dispute in the young growing church, they figured out how to care for the needs of the church in a way that was constructive, in a way that was helpful, in a way that didn't distract from the gospel, in a way that encouraged participation. Each week in these three weeks in Acts, we've been saying that God forms a person to create a people. 
And we see that again in Acts chapter 15 as they deal with their disagreement. You may recall that in the first week we looked at Acts chapter 2 when the gift of the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost to those waiting. They had been praying in response to the direction of Jesus to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And on that day, like a mighty rushing wind and with tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit came and inspired them and ignited them. And the preaching that took place on that day was so inspired by the Holy Spirit that everyone heard the gospel in their own language. And last Sunday, we were in Acts chapter eight and explored the work of the Holy Spirit at the growing edges of the church. As people had been persecuted, they fled Jerusalem and they took the gospel with them wherever they went into Samaria. And we read about the exploits of Philip. And we heard about those who came to see what was taking place in Antioch. We heard about the sorcery of Simon the magician. We talked about the difference between magic and miracles and we, we find Philip on the road going south, ministering to an Ethiopian official, an African, the first Gentile to be baptized and uncircumcised. And all of these reports begin to stir up a little bit of a dissonance. And so as we heard this morning in Acts chapter 15, some went out from Jerusalem teaching that you could not be saved unless you had been circumcised. And so at the center of this council in Jerusalem is this challenge. And so it is that the Council of Jerusalem is the climax of the events occurring between chapters eight and 15. Because when you look back at chapter nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, we begin to see that God has been shaping persons in preparation to create a people. Because in those chapters you find Saul with an identity crisis. Saul on the road to Damascus has an encounter with God that is so transformative that his identity changes completely from a leading Pharisee persecuting the Christians and seeking to wipe out the church to someone who becomes the leading advocate. Paul becomes the most successful proponent of the gospel in those days. And claims even the label of apostle. For he says, I received it from Jesus Christ himself. 
And if you want a definition of success, think about it this way. If thousands of years from now, there are millions of people studying your writings, that's a success. That's Paul. That's the identity crisis in chapter nine. In chapter 10, Peter has his vision. Has his vision, you remember? He sees this image coming down and he and God have a discussion and he says to God, I would never touch or eat anything unclean and God says to him, do not call unclean what I call clean. God is shaping Peter for the discussion that is about to happen in Jerusalem at the council. And so all of this goes on and Peter is taken prisoner and defends his actions and then he escapes from prison in chapter 12 and in chapters 13 and 14, Barnabas and Paul are sent off. And so it is as they go and they are preaching and teaching and they're leading people to Jesus. People are being saved and finding faith in Jesus Christ. And so it is that chapter 15 becomes the center point of all that's been taking place. And we must remember that the decisions made during the Council of Jerusalem have shaped the lives of all followers of Jesus since that day, yours and mine included. In fact, you and I all should say thanks be to God for the council in Jerusalem. Because if that council had not met, had not resolved the issue about circumcision, we would have a very different practice of Christianity today. Chapter 15 has three movements. It recognizes the growing tension among church leaders over the application of Mosaic and Levitical law to Gentile believers. The second movement is the, is the way that the discussion and resolution of these tensions are dealt with by the apostles, the elders and leaders of the church in verses six through 35. And then the last movement is the centrality of the gospel when another disagreement erupts between two church leaders. So let's spend a few moments looking at this growing tension that was becoming a distraction. And it's right there in verse one of chapter 15. Some were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. It might help us to understand that that statement is about more than just circumcision. If the early church leaders had agreed with those teaching that Gentile believers had to be circumcised, it would have placed the burden of all of the Mosaic and Levitical law upon all non-Jewish Christians. If these teachers known as Judaizers had been successful in their arguments, early Christianity would have devolved into a theology of works because the burden of the Levitical law brought with it all of the rituals of cleansing and purification and sacrifice and all of the things that in their mind had to be done to demonstrate fidelity with God. 
and there would have been this incredible burden placed upon new believers. It also meant that salvation that had been made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus would now be earned through the keeping of the law and would no longer be a work of grace through Jesus Christ. But Peter in verse 10 reminds the assembly that even the Jews could not bear the burden of the law. And if the Jews could not bear the burdens of the law, why put it on the Gentiles, the new believers? R.C. Sproul said it this way, those in the first century church wanted to know how Gentiles, Samaritans, and the God-fearing Greeks fit into the New Testament church. Were they to be second-class citizens? Was there to be a certain secondary rung like there had been in Israel with an outer court for the Gentiles and an inner court for the Jews? As we have seen repeatedly, the overarching theme of the book of Acts is that there are no second-class citizens in the New Testament community. Samaritan believers, God-fearing believers such as the household of Cornelius and Gentile believers such as the Ephesians were all numbered among the people of God and had equal status in the New Testament church. There is no preference for the Jew or the Greek, the male or the female. All people are on even ground at the foot of the cross. That's good news. That's good news. It's good news for everyone in this room because it is Jesus who makes that possible. Not the church, not the practice, but by the grace of God through Jesus Christ there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. The way this discussion and resolution of the issue provides a helpful model for us when dealing with complex issues. At the heart of the Jerusalem Council is a bigger question beyond the issue of circumcision. What is required to be saved? To be saved in the New Testament means to be delivered out of danger into safety and to be made well or whole, to be forgiven of your sins, to be declared righteous, not guilty. Big word, justification. Just as if I had never sinned. Justification is by God through faith in Jesus Christ who declares us righteous to be saved is to receive the free gift of eternal life offered to all who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the Judaizers were saying, you were not saved until you were circumcised. But the concluding response of the Council of Jerusalem was that believers are saved only by grace through Jesus Christ, not by works. 
For Jesus, through his death on the cross, has taken on the burden of the law. Salvation brings freedom, not burden. The law brings burden, not freedom. And so Jesus Christ becomes the hope of freedom. The gospel is the good news that the burden of the law is gone and the freedom of faith is now present. Paul's argument later in Acts and in his letter to the Galatians was that everything in the Levitical law pointed to and had come to pass in Jesus. And how did the council get to their conclusion? They listened to one another. Peter, Barnabas, and Paul gave witness to the work of God among the Gentiles. They discussed that work. They discussed Peter's vision. Everyone knew what Peter had seen. They studied the scripture. James, the brother of Jesus, leader of the church in Jerusalem, summarizes what he has heard and gives his wise guidance by reciting the word of God among the Gentiles and the word of the prophets regarding Gentiles. And then they prayed. There's a model there for us, friends. And after they decided, after all of the above, they came to agreement and then they communicated. But before we move on, it is worth asking another large question. What is going on behind the stated question? There's a bit of feeling that some of this was a bit like trying to put new wine into old wineskins. There were people who were trying to take the new experience since Pentecost and put it into the old wineskin of the law. R.C. Sproul and Craig Keener both suggest that those, were, those who were holding to the requirements of the law under the Mosaic Covenant were seeking to preserve the past. Anyone here like the past? Any of us ever want to preserve the past? How many of us ever thought the past was simpler? We remember it sometimes with a fondness that has often forgotten the complexity of the past. Nostalgia tends to remember the better parts. I've been thinking about the remarkable transformation of Saul. For he was one of the most prominent among the Pharisees, persecuting the believers, upholding the law, and has an experience, a transforming experience with God, and he surrenders all of that and becomes the largest, most vocal proponent of doing away with the law in favor of grace. In other words, he becomes the loudest advocate for leaving the past and not preserving it into the future.
There's a human tendency to try and preserve the past by appealing to orthodoxy. That's what the Judaizers were doing. Let's go back to the orthodoxy of the law. Let's go back to the way we've always understood it and practiced it. The challenge is that they risk splitting the world of God's work into two camps so that it would have been Jews and Gentiles, Jews following Jesus and Gentiles following Jesus. And how often does human nature create these kinds of binary or these kinds of bifurcated or these kinds of separate understandings and say, it's either this or this. And even our own language in the church sometimes is not helpful. But we talk about the saved and the what? The unsaved. We talk about the faithful and the unfaithful. I'm not sure that vocabulary is helpful to anyone. Let's just talk about everybody being on a journey of faith and we're different places in the journey. And if that idea frustrates you, let's talk about it. Because if I understand the work of God, that God loves all of the people of God's creation, how can I separate people out according to my understanding of who is and who isn't? Because you and I never know when and where God is at work in someone's life ahead of the opportunity for them to come to Jesus. And so there is the opportunity for us to give expression to loving, gracious understanding rather than categorization that splits people into two camps or three camps or four camps. Throughout the history of the church, humanity has created artificial qualifiers to define what it means to illustrate faith in Christ. For example, two weeks ago when we celebrated Reformation Sunday, Martin Luther's 99 thesis on the door at Wittenberg was written out of his dissatisfaction and displeasure because he opposed the payment of indulgences created by the church. And some church groups, even ours included at times, have created identities seeking to place one over another. And in essence, we create the burden of the law again.
as a result of the Jerusalem Council, there was only one response needed to the question of have you been saved? It is simply this, I have placed my trust and my faith in Jesus Christ. I have placed my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, Jesus has saved me. He's made me safe. Delivered me from the penalty. Made it possible so that I will not be cut off from God. There's hope in that, friends. There's hope in that. The council also gave direction. You are saved by grace. You don't need to be circumcised. Now live like you've been saved by grace. Don't use blood. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't be sexually immoral. Good counsel. But let me just add a caution here. Be careful if you feel a need to give counsel to someone. Be careful. Some years ago in a church where I served on the pastoral staff on a Sunday night, back when we still had Sunday night services. Anybody remember Sunday night services? Women's Ministries had held a retreat that weekend and they came home and on Sunday night they gave a report and the evangelism pastor stood right in the pulpit next to a woman and that woman gave the report that she had given her life to Jesus during that weekend. Great, wonderful, thanks be to God story. One more detail. She was living with a man that she was unmarried to. And church leadership decided to let the Holy Spirit work. And after a few weeks or months, they were married. But no one meddled. <laughs> Could I just encourage us that the work of the Holy Spirit is far more effective at teaching and reminding and correcting and judging than any of us are? and that the Holy Spirit can be trusted to do that work?
I know that may give some of us a little pause, but it's right there in scripture, John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Jesus in the upper room talking to his disciples about the gift of the Holy Spirit is to come and Jesus lays out the work and the roles of the Holy Spirit, the one who will walk alongside. And in our particular tribe, we believe in the prevenient grace of God. That is, God at work in the life of someone before they're saved. Many of us can tell that story when we look back. It's a story that's only told usually in the rearview mirror of life. And so here they are. Just one brief comment. In the last several verses, verses 36 to 41, there is a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. They have gone back. They've gone out from the council of Jerusalem. And Paul says, let's go visit all the places where we preach the gospel. Paul's personality is assertive, type A. None of you here are type A. focused, you give Paul a task, he's gonna go get it done. Barnabas has a reputation as a man who has a gift of encouragement. He encourages, and so Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us. Paul says, absolutely not. He bailed on us on a previous missionary trip I'm not going with him. He's not going with me. Barnabas says, well, there should be space for a person to have another opportunity. And it goes back and forth. And the Greek word for sharp means explosive. It means furious. And they had an explosive disagreement, so much so that Paul went one way and Barnabas and John Mark went another way. And what I have observed from that passage is two things. One is they didn't let their disagreement develop into bitterness because the gospel was more important than the matter at hand. They didn't let it become a distraction and so what really happened is Instead of one missionary journey, there were now two. And the gospel goes in new ways and new places because they didn't let the sharp disagreement distract from the gospel. They let the gospel be primary. True gospel asks this. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and been saved by faith in him? We sang the song earlier in the service. Have you decided to follow Jesus? The song doesn't say that, does it? It says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I just turned it into a question. 
Have you decided to follow Jesus? Thanks be to God. If you haven't decided to follow Jesus, I would invite you to follow Jesus. I would invite you to follow Jesus and there'll be a pastor here at the close of this service who will pray with you and talk to you and answer your questions. Because that's what we want to be about, inviting people to follow Jesus. We also want to be about not requiring circumcision. I've been wondering, what is today's circumcision? Some folks practice a different form of circumcision today. You can't be a Christian if. And they create a definition that fits their own view of life, but has no rootedness in the grace and mercy of Jesus, except that it creates the burden of the law. There's hope for us, friends. There's hope for us in the name of Jesus Christ. There's hope for us in being saved. There's hope for us in the future created by God. Let's stand together. Receive this benediction from Ephesians chapter three. May Christ, may Christ dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And everyone said, amen. God bless you, you are dismissed.